afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 14th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time and are free and open to the public. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I'm the host of these discussions. We are streaming on YouTube Live. The link to this discussion can be found at the Scott Knowles YouTube channel. Uh, has come to my attention. There are many Scott Knowles YouTube channels, um, but this is the only one dedicated to the COVID-19 pandemic, so you can locate it that way. You can also email me directly, sgk23 at drexel.edu, or find me on Twitter, at US of Disaster. Please do help me spread the word for these calls. Send suggestions for guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself. You can also hear these COVID-19 calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast. Tomorrow, we have a double header of COVID calls. I think I'm missing baseball season. Um, at 4 p.m. Eastern time, we have Princeton political historian and CNN columnist Julian Zelizer to talk with us about pandemics and politics. And at 5 p.m. Eastern time, we'll have a discussion of the full COVID-19 story from the South Korean perspective with Professor Cheong Jong of the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, KAIST, and Dr. Sung Sik Wong of Seoul National University. As of today, there are globally 998,047 confirmed COVID-19 cases, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. This is up from 911,308 cases yesterday. 234,462 of those cases are in the United States, up from 206,207 yesterday. But as I've said, colleagues I speak to in public health and medicine tell me that those numbers are low. There are now a total of 5,648 deaths reported in the United States, up from 4,542 yesterday. A new number I'd like to share with you is that the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center now reports 8,861 survivors of COVID-19 in the United States. That's people who've recovered. So as I was thinking about today's COVID calls discussion, I was thinking about my family. I've been thinking about my family a lot lately, as you all have as well. And not just the family inside my shelter, in place home, but my six brothers and sisters, my mom and my stepfather, my stepmother and my father, my nieces and nephews. I have one wonderful remaining grandmother who's still with us. Uh, naturally, family has been on my mind. It's been all of our minds in this pandemic. I keep in touch with them through so many different means. I've lost track now um, with my parents via text and by phone, and I'm used to them being far away, but now they seem very, very far away. They live in Texas. I live in the East Coast. There have been some tough discussions lately, too, around curtailing social events and travel, and the concern has flowed in both directions. This isn't really different from the normal ebb and flow of family discussions, maybe, but somehow it's more charged now. Actually, I think it's much more charged. We don't want our loved ones to get sick. We want them to follow the best advice of health authorities. But for me, this has been a problem. Texas hasn't been on lockdown. It, it, even the governor won't use the shelter-in-place language. Some employers, and this affects my family, have up until very recently been, asked, been asking my family members to come into work, and one of them is still doing so, even though it's not really necessary. So these things have been on my mind. It hasn't been easy. It raises issues of communication across generations. It raises issues of care and concern for elders. So I wanted to talk to some experts in these areas who could help me think through this a little bit. So with that, let me introduce my guests today. Bernadette McBride has a master's in nursing from Gonzaga University and a master's in health education from Whitworth University. She's a registered nurse practitioner in Washington State, spe specializing in geriatric family practice. Bernadette has been the owner of adult family homes, legacy management, and tranquility life care in the Tri-Cities area of Washington State for 25 years. For her first master's degree, she focused on death and bereavement of parents who lost children 
to sudden infant, infant death syndrome. Dr. Sarah K. McBride, and yes, she's Bernadette's daughter, uh, has a PhD in media studies from Massey University. Sarah has a master's degree in public administration from the University of Hawaii at Manoa with a concentration in disaster management and humanitarian assistance. She's currently a Mendenhall Fellow at the US Geological Survey where she studies the communication of aftershock forecasts and earthquake early warning. Sarah also has 16 years of emergency management practitioner experience. And among the many things she did in that context, she was part of New Zealand's H1N1 response in 2009. And our third guest today, colleague of mine at Drexel, Yvonne Michael, Associate Professor in Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the Drexel Dornsife School of Public Health. Yvonne's research is focused in three areas, active aging, women's health, and health disparities. The unifying theme across her research areas is the use of epidemiology, as a method of inquiry to identify social characteristics of communities and individuals and describe the impact of those factors on population health. So we have three wonderful guests today. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Thank you all three for joining us on COVID calls today. Thank you. So I'd like to encourage those who are watching and listening to ask questions. You can ask questions in the YouTube live chat, or you can email them to me, sgk23 at drexel.edu during the conversation. You can tweet them uh, at me, just uh, tag USF disaster, reach me however you can and get questions in for this discussion. So enough for me. Uh, as we get started, I'd like to turn to you, Bernadette, first. And as I've been doing in these calls, I've been asking people if they would just tell us about the situation where they are. So could you bring us up to date a little bit on how things are in eastern Washington state right now? Yes, um, I just checked on our statistic here in the Tri-Cities, which is in the southeastern corner of the state of Washington, uh, about 30 miles from the Oregon border. We have a population of about 300,000 people in our community. Uh, the health department says uh, as of today, we have 189 cases of, uh, of tested positive um, virus and we have had seven deaths. Uh, most of the cases have been in long-term care. Hey, so thank you for that update of the situation there. And I wonder, we'll just stay with you for a minute. Can you tell us a little bit um, about your background and how you got into the profession you're in and your work there? Sure, I've been a, a nurse, uh, as I said to Sarah, since the Punic Wars in a long time. And, and uh, at some point I got uh, sick and tired of sick and tired. And so I got a master's degree in uh, health education, public health kind of thing. And I work primarily with uh, family as a consultant for the state of Washington uh, who had lost a child and uh, was uh, dealing with grief and loss. Um, and I did that for like seven years. And then uh, at some point I decided I wanted to take care of people in a smaller, environment with a fairly minimal uh, bureaucracy. And uh, uh, so uh, I started a Dole family home about 25 years ago. We had uh, up to six homes. They're basically the bed and breakfast of long-term care. And uh, we have a maximum of six residents per home. They're all over, usually over 80. Mm. Uh, and uh, we have a, a a philosophy of aging in place so we do a number of hospice care uh, as well and uh, we take care of our residents um, in, a, in, a, in very nice settings. How many residents are you presently taking care of there? Well I have about uh, I have three homes of our, our own that are staff right now so uh, I have like eight, 14 right now uh, and then I also uh, oversee the care of uh, three other homes uh, as well. So total is, is about 32 residents that I am uh, the primary care uh, provider for those residents. And that's 32 residents multiplied by all of the family members who are 
turning to you for information about them constantly. So that's a big community of people to which you're the point of contact. Yeah, I feel I'm like 75 people to 100 people that, um, you know, have to be nurtured. Okay, well, we're going to come back to you and talk a little bit more about what that nurturing has looked like in these last few weeks. But Sarah, I want to come to you. Can you give us uh, the lay of the land there in the Bay Area, California? Uh, yeah, I'm in Santa Clara County. I'm actually in Santa Clara right now. And uh, we were one of the first areas to uh, record COVID cases. Uh, we received our shelter in place orders on a county level on the 16th of March. And, <coughs> and shortly, there was a shelter in place order for the whole state of California after that. Uh, we've had the second uh, largest amount of in, per county. We've had the second second largest amount of cases. And, um, and I think deaths in California, with LA County, of course, um, uh, being significantly more impacted so far. Um, it's, it's a really unique, and the, the Bay Area is so lively, and there's always so many people here, and, you know, I'm, we're in the hub of Silicon Valley, so there's constantly cars and airplanes and noise overhead, and, and the first day that the shelter-in-place orders came into effect, I woke up at 6 a.m. and there was no noise, there was no traffic, there was no airplanes. It was completely silent and it's the first time I've heard the bay, the app, this, 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 this sort of blanket of silence going over the bay and it was a real um, discombobulating experience for the first 72 hours of the bay being so quiet. And now some normalcy has returned to this, right? There is now some more traffic, people are now getting used to what what is happening. So. Um, overall, you know, uh, things are, are okay. Um, I know that there are a lot of people impacted, including homeless. We certainly have a homelessness issue within the Bay Area, and that's, that's a significant problem here. But in, yeah, in terms of personally, it's, 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 there's, there's been disruption, but not, you know, a huge amount of disruption to me personally. Well, the U.S. Geological Survey has enormous responsibilities um, in the United States for warnings. I mean, is, is this, are there essential personnel who are, are going into the office or is everyone's working from home? How's that working? We're following the directive of all the county, state, uh, all, all of our government officials, um, all of the warning systems and systems that we are currently managing are, are being well taken care of um, in, in accordance to any local, uh, regional, uh, local, state, and federal levels. So, um, yeah, things are still still operating, up and running, still local, doing the job. And so. local rules apply. So we got a bunch of scientists who are running the USGS from their houses and apartments right now. As as pertains to any any local local state or, or whatever governance structure that they're that they're under. So we're we're all 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 working together though. That's remarkable. Thank you for that. Um, let me turn to you, Yvonne. What's the situation in Philadelphia right now? Yeah, so we have been on a shelter in place um, order from the city since March 22nd. Um, And so similar to what you've heard, um, restrictions, significant restrictions on business activity, personal activity, congregation. Um, So like Bernadette and Sarah, I've been home for several weeks. Um, It's very quiet in the city uh, where I live. I live in a university city near Drexel and University of Pennsylvania. So uh, all the students have um, gone back home. Um, so it's, it's very, very quiet, strangely quiet. Um, there was a little bit of excitement um, because the uh, sanitation workers had a labor action uh, the last couple of days because they didn't have adequate protection uh, in their contract for the uh, hazard that they had to um, base to pick up trash. So last uh, couple of days, uh, we had no trash pickup. So on top of the silence, there was uh, a ton of trash because lots of people had moved out. Um, but uh, um, luckily for us and hopefully for the workers, they've got adequate protection and they're back to work. So cleaned up uh, cases. According to the city of Philadelphia, we have uh, 2,100 cases in Philly. I receive emergency alerts uh, pertaining to Philadelphia. And I got one the other day that said emergency alert. And I thought, well, that's strange to receive it at this moment. Is it related to the pandemic? And it said, um, there's a protest at City Hall. People are driving around City Hall honking their horns. 
uh, <laughs> as, as a form of protest. So that's, you know, it's very hard to kill the Philadelphia spirit of dissent. Uh, very true, very true. Yvonne, could you tell us a little bit about your, I mean, you have a very a varied portfolio of research, but can you just take us a little bit inside to the kind of questions that, that you work on the most? Sure. So um, as you said, I'm an epidemiologist. I work at uh, the John Sepp School of Public Health. Uh, a lot, I teach classes to graduate students on research methods. Um, uh, I do have a varied portfolio of research, but a, a good chunk of my research includes a focus on healthy aging. Um, so unlike a lot of the epidemiologists you've been talking to and hearing from these days, I don't work with infectious disease. Um, uh, I focus on the identification of factors um, in the occupational, social, built environment that influence healthy aging. So how can we keep older adults um, uh, maintaining their function, both physical function, uh, mental function with age? Um, and so uh, one of my newest projects um, is to understand how we can tailor disaster response systems to aging adults' um, unique vulnerabilities and resiliency factors. So that's a new area for me, and I'm excited to be uh, learning more about disaster response, but I am uh, no expert uh, except for what I'm going through right now. <laughs> so there's a, 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 I think here an important overlap, Yvonne, with your research and with Bernadette's everyday experience, which is taking care of older folks um, who are in various states of health, I'm assuming based on, you know, various different kinds of health factors and vulnerabilities that may, they may have. And Bernadette, I want to come to you actually if you could just tell us a little bit as we start, um, how are your residents coping with this? Um, what level of concern do they have? What kind of measures have you been taking around the pandemic? And also, uh, I want to know how their families are coping with this. Well, there is no question that it's it's hard. There's no question about it. We we. Uh, used to be a very vibrant community with a lot of gathering, uh, family type meeting around the table. Um, we have an activity directors that would do exercise, group exercise, sing along, all kinds of things all day long. Um, now with this not being able to be less than six feet from each other, there is no more communal eating, people eat in their room. Um, there is, uh, it's, it's, it's just missing this. They, they don't get the hug they used to get every day from all of us because we are being careful. Um, that, that, is, that is changing. Now we're trying to, now that the, the first wave, the first shock of what we had to do is starting to fade a little bit, we're starting to do things a little bit differently to increase the morale. So we put uh, Elvis Presley's music quite loud so they can hear it everywhere in the house. Um, uh, we, uh, we have uh, tried to do bingo from, from the outside of the room and then we, we yell really loud the numbers. Um, it's not the same. Uh, they obviously realize that something is different. Some of our residents have dementia and they're just uh, kind of bewildered because we all wear masks and gown and all this kind of thing. Um, it's hard. Now for the family, uh, families, what we have, we, we have a, a outside uh, each rooms, outside we have longer patios and they, they can come behind the windows and we open the window a little bit because the weather is nice and they can talk on, either on the phone and, and see each other. And uh, as long as they're far away enough, you know, six feet, then, then it's okay. And the grandkids can come and sing along and, and do that sort of thing. So we're trying to keep this up uh, with them. Um, we, we are trying different things and when we're finding new things to do every day, to make life a little happier for them. Bernadette, who do you turn to for the health information, the public health information that you need? You're relying on Washington state officials, more local officials. Where are you turning for the guidance you need uh, to take the steps that, that you need? Even you said the use of masks or how you know, distancing, the different kind of steps you've been taking there to keep everyone safe. 
Sure. Uh, there are several webinars uh, almost daily with uh, DSHS, with uh, uh, public health, uh, so on and so forth that I can uh, approach uh, or get on or have my staff listen to. Uh, they send us uh, all kind of communications uh, that we print for like the staff and, uh, and they have to read and sign so everybody is on that, that same page. Hmm. So I, you know, and uh, I, I've been the, in this community a long time, so I'm very good friend with the head of public health here. And so I, I, I stay in the loop. As far as supplies, uh, we're doing okay. As a matter of fact, I just got this. I don't know if you can see that. Um, I got it. We, we have all kinds of wineries in the state of Washington. So I went to the distillery and they gave me this bottle uh, that we can do our own uh, hand sanitizer. Um, so, and then, uh, so we have, we're doing okay with the supplies. That, could, you, could you hold that up one more time just so everybody gets a look at that? This is a special vintage of hand sanitizer, it looks like. Yes. That's extraordinary. Warning, do not drink. I'm glad it has that important health yeah. information right there on the label. Wow. So we, we, we mix it with glycerin and then uh, it makes great hand sanitizer. That's my second bottle. Um, Luckily, thanks to Sarah, who has trained me very well for the last 15 years, uh, she's really good at telling me where the dangers are and what I should be ready for and what to do in case of earthquake and tsunamis and all those sort of things. So she told me one time, she said, in case of a tsunami, mom, don't run for the fish that are flopping around and run for the hill. So I, I translated that when it happened don't run for the wall for the the paper the uh, toilet paper, but run for the PPE. And uh, so I I got uh, a lot of supplies, boxes of gloves and gowns and and masks and so on. So we we're well stocked. Um, and also we have a school to train uh, CNAs. And of course we stopped the school and I had uh, all that supplies, that PPE supplies from the school that we raided mm. for the adult family homes. Thank you for that. It's really extraordinary uh, details. I'm getting text messages and tweets right now about your strategy of blaring Elvis as a, as a way to cope with the disaster. Uh, I wanna come to you, um, Sarah, uh, and then to Yvonne, um, particularly around this issue of aging populations in disaster and public health, what kind of, of issues or tensions are being thrown into relief right now? You know, the kinds of concerns that you have in emergency management, let's say, Sarah, around vulnerable populations, um, aging populations. What is the pandemic showing us? How are we prepared? How are we ill-prepared? Can you talk a little bit about that? I think I'm gonna send this over to Yvonne, if you want, because I'm, I'm not necessarily studying the elderly in specifics at the sure. moment um, or, or a specific vulnerable population for my current work. I think Yvonne is actually much more qualified to answer this question than I am. Okay, Yvonne, go ahead. Then we'll come back to you, Sarah, in a minute. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that um, from a uh, coming out of the research that I've done, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is uh, social connectedness. Um, uh, social isolation uh, is, a, is, a, is a really important um, public health issue. Uh, we know that um, social isolation is associated with increased morbidi morbidity and, and mortality in the best of times. And with this current disaster, um, uh, as we've all been talking about, uh, we're forced to isolate ourselves. And especially the older population um, is uh, very vulnerable and needing to stay distant from those systems of support, um, their fellow residents, their the families and friends that don't live um, with them directly. Uh, and this loss of social connectedness, loss of support uh, from, from families and friends uh, can be uh, a big health issue. Um, uh, can, um, you know, in some very tangible and intangible ways, you have the, the emotional support, of course, which is intangible, but um, uh, 
very important for for health well-being um, and then you have the the tangible support the um, the family that was coming into the nursing home and um, making sure the medications were correct uh, mm -hmm. making sure that there were no bed sores for example and and none of that's happening right now in a lot of places so um, that's a, a concern for the older adults. It's also an issue for the families, uh, where families are in positions of, uh, of uh, knowing that their loved ones, uh, uh, parents, elderly residents are, um, elderly uh, family members are, uh, are sick. Um, they're not able to visit them. They're not able to see them. Um, in many cases, not able to be with them when, when they're dying. Um, and so there's just a lot of, of loss and grief. Um, in that, uh, that has again uh, really important health uh, impl implications. So that's that's a lot of what I've been thinking about. Yeah. Um, Sarah, let me uh, return to you. I know you know based on what your mom was saying, she was sharing with us there moments when you took an opportunity to uh, provide her with valuable emergency response information. Uh, you're an expert in alert and warning many different contexts. Can you take, tell us a little bit more about your research in, in that regard? And if you would, um, be willing to talk a little bit about what you've noticed in this pandemic in, in that regard. In, any aspects of alert warning in your own research you want to talk about? Uh, thanks for that question, Scott. So I just wanted to give an example of, of another time that I helped mom out with a little bit of information uh, that I had. Um, because I knew that there had been an earthquake in Walla Walla in 1936 that had been a, a magnitude six-ish, you know, not a small earthquake. I knew that, and I knew that there was some potential for earthquakes in, in my home region. And so I made, I called my mom and I'm like, mom, you got to get earthquake insurance. And she's like, no. And, and who do I even call to get earthquake insurance? So she called her broker and it took them a couple of weeks and they finally found someone to get them earthquake insurance, but they're like, earthquakes can happen in this part of the world and then the 6.5 happened in Idaho and I was like you know see mom you know that these these things can happen in places where it might be 30 years since the last earthquake but you know even though it may not be as frequent in your area it doesn't mean that you know you're free of, of earthquakes necessarily so I think mom is a little bit grateful that I made her get yeah. earthquake in terms of alerts and warnings, so uh, I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily a warnings or alert expert. I think I, I specialize in, in disaster communication, and alerts and warnings are definitely a, a really important segment of that communication, and I'm working on that earthquake early warning system at the moment. And it's really uh, breaking down how people understand alerts and how quickly they can take action, given we know that uh, the earthquake early warning system can only provide seconds of warnings uh, as opposed to other warning systems which can provide a lot longer say you know when you're looking at hurricanes which can provide you know 10 days potentially of warning so you have varying levels of timing uh, in terms of when people can can take action in terms of this event and uh, how warnings are being used I think it's it's a pretty complex uh, questions still at the moment. Uh, it's so it's so moving at the moment and things are constantly changing and uh, The way that this is moving from community to community is, is different And so to apply one standard to one geographic area uh, in terms of timing I think is a really complex endeavor at the moment So I think it's something that that will have I think more time needs to pass before we can be really critical uh, and and thoughtful in terms of how warnings were used um, because it's still such an evolving situation. And, uh, and every, you know, every country has its own way uh, and, and way of delivery and jurisdictional issues. And, and so it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, I think right now, I, I think it's just, it's still really evolving. Sarah, I wanted to, to keep going on this because I'm really interested in sort of the research frontier around trust and communication. And, you know, I think looking at the research after September 11, for example, about, you know, with evacuees, people who got out, and who did they turn to literally in those, the hour that some of them had uh, to make a decision of how they were going to evacuate. Um, we learned a lot after that, and I think after Katrina as well, but there's still a lot of unknowns. As I, as I understand it, you know, authoritative public officials certainly carry 
an important role in that moment, but we also turn to networks of trust too. Can you, I know it's hard to generalize, but could you take us into this discussion a little bit? Because I want to then build on that to talk about parents and children talking. Well, so recently, um, I think it was Louisiana had the head of their football coach go to a press conference and talk about his perspective. And, and he, used, he used the standardized key messaging. And some people sort of felt like, well, why is a football coach standing up there? And that's, my thought that's is- people that who've never been to Louisiana would ask that question, yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, he's, he's a trusted, beloved public figure and the messaging is right. And, you know, they're, they're, they're doing the right thing. And if, if it takes, you know, a football coach from Louisiana, then, then it takes a football coach from Louisiana. Like I'm, I'm perfectly, you know, I'm at peace with that, with that approach. And I think, you know, the, the research tends to indicate that multiple sources of information amplifying the same or similar messages tend to increase the levels of trust. So when you're working, so with community groups or with, you know, in, in levels of community, you know, yes, you want one consistent message, but having multiple people or groups amplify it, I think is a really important component as well. And I'm seeing a lot of that happen, which is, which is wonderful. This is a question that actually came up. Um, I was speaking with some folks in Philadelphia the other day, and they were really asking hard questions about how in this, in this moment, um, particularly in a disaster that's playing out over a period of time, um, how could we stimulate targeted messaging? You're talking about the football coach. That's an obvious one. I think a good one for Louisiana might hold in Texas, but Philadelphia, for example, very diverse city, very diverse region. Um, should we be thinking about those kinds of strategies down to individual populations, age groups, parts of town even? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it, it, I mean, it depends how much resources any one group has to do this kind of legwork to get to get the right community leader or uh, person to do to do that piece of work. Um, I, I'm just a big believer in in different people amplifying the messages and the research really holds that to bear that, uh, you know, we, we know that um, if you give someone a booklet or a piece of information, and it has one logo on it from one organization that has a lot of weight to it. But if it has multiple logos from multiple organizations, all backing up the same message, then that also seems to have a lot of impact. And, and I think one thing that's really um, heartening about this event is how many organizations are working together all at the same time to, to, to manage this response, you know, and, and how, how emergency management is bringing all of these many threads to, uh, to, to work to work on this particular event and that's and that's really how emergency management is, is meant to work um, so I really applaud my emergency management colleagues um, I think a lot of them are working some very very tough hours some long hours absolutely. Sure. and um, yeah one of the reasons Did I was that answer your question Scott yeah no absolutely and one of the reasons I wanted to uh, was so excited to have you all on today um, and if I could speak a little more personally you know the sort of getting to these issues of trust and family and in difficult times communicating and communicating across generations. Um, you know, my parents live in San Antonio. They were not getting consistent. They were getting different information from the federal government, the state government and the city. And they were, I know, looking um, for good sound information they could, they could rely on. And it's been, it's been hard for them. Um, and that's been hard for me. Um, you know, I'm a disaster historian sitting up in my uh, office, uh, you know, 1600 miles away. I can't give them the information. I can express care, but I can't give them what I think the kind of information they need to know should they go to church or not on Sunday. Um, and that's the level at which a lot of these discussions have, have come down, I think. I don't know, maybe Sarah and Bernadette, if you would would you mind sharing with us a little bit, even at a personal level, kind of how your communications have have worked in the last few weeks around this this disaster? Hmm. Um, well, you know, just with my husband, uh, we know we had to have this conversation uh, because uh, what happened when somebody is diagnosed they usually are taken to the hospital and that's the last time you might get to see the person. 
So I, I had to approach that. Now, I, I've been working with death and dying for a long time. So it's kind of, a, you know, fairly natural uh, for me to get into that. And I basically said, hey, um, you know that life is a sexually transmitted disease uh, or condition with a terminal diagnosis, don't you? And uh, it, I said, uh, so maybe we need to talk. What ha what could happen um, if uh, this uh, this happened to us? And uh, I said, first I want to get all of your passwords because uh, I wouldn't be able to function <laughs> uh, if I didn't get that. But I need to know from you what do you you know what do you want to see happen? Um, it was hard because he had the impression that. Well, you just go to the hospital and they put you on a ventilator and then, you know, um, statistically you have a good chance to get better. And unfortunately, there's only 20% of people that have been put on ventilator that actually will, will recover. So uh, it was important to say, um, you know, what what do you want to see happen if uh, if uh, if you get sick? You know, how do you want uh, things to go on, you know, to, you know, for a funeral, for, you know, that sort of thing. It was hard for him to talk about it. Um, and he kind of cut me short uh, after a bit because he was trying to process that. And I mm -hmm. went planning to go back to it um, because, um, frankly, uh, it is a potential. We are in that age group. Sarah, did you want to share anything on on this point about communication? Yeah, family. I mean, I, I talked to my dad about it last night, and he just sort of sighed after about two or three minutes of our discussion, and he said, uh, "My father is a nuclear chemist, and he's like, I just wish people would stop talking about COVID and start talking more about plutonium." And you know, <laughs> which I was like, I, I don't know if that's the conversation we're going to be having right now. Yeah, Dad. sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, sorry, Dad. Um, so I can see Dad kind of being like, oh, this is yeah. this is a lot for me to handle. I mean, for me personally, and and the communications I have in with the people in my personal life, um, I've been on a lot of deployments uh, overseas for for disasters. Um, you know, responded to the Samoa tsunami in two thousand nine. Uh, worked in, in the Christchurch earthquake and in a lot of earthquakes in New Zealand and, you know, been to the Cat 5 in Fiji and just, did, you know, I've done a number of deployments now and I look at it in the, in the same way I look at it preparing for a deployment and I communicate to the people I need to about it as a deployment. So one of the first things you do in a deployment when you get the call is you make sure your affairs are in order, that, you know, your will is 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 ready to go and everyone knows what uh, who needs to know, knows what the next steps are. And so that's kind of where I've gone to it. So like a small example, I, I put together my research will, which sounds really dark, but it's basically like, if anything happens to me, here's where all my research is, here's where my in vivo files are, here's where my qualitative analysis is, and here are the researchers who can finish my work and get my papers published. Because I was like, well, you know, I spent all this time being a researcher and I love my, my research, so much I don't want it to go with me and so you know here's here's a two or three page document about keeping my research going um, in, in case anything happens to me and even though this is impacting you know more in the mortality rate of of the older age group there is cases of, of younger people getting sick and and passing away so I, I don't think anyone I think these are good things these are good practical things that we can do and then we can communicate those to the people we care about after we're gone and, and before. So having these conversations, I think, is, is, a, is a coping mechanism in and of itself. Mm. I mean, it, to me, it seems like these are conversations, of course, that are had between parents and children and brothers and sisters, but they're not usually had all at once. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, what you're describing, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a lot to take on one of these conversations on its own, but then let's have the passwords talk and the DNR talk and the insurance talk all at once. Mm -hmm. I, I just think that's, I don't know. I mean, it, it, Yvonne, I know this isn't your like area of research per se, but I just wanted to turn to you on this. I mean, do we have from a public health 
perspective, some understanding of the, of the tensions of having to have these kind of difficult talks in the midst of disaster? I mean, I think that uh, uh, in general, uh, we have a hard time with these types of conversations and talking about death is something that um, people maybe particularly in the US, I'm not sure if this is a, a US thing or not, but certainly here we have a hard time talking about it. And so, um, I, you know, I, I think a lot of people may be avoiding it still, um, but I, um, I really resonate uh, with um, the things that Bernadette and Sarah said around the kinds of conversations I've been having um, with my husband, with my parents, um, probably not as much with my kids as I should. Uh, uh, you know, my kids are teenagers, um, but it's, it's not too early to have that conversation with them. So I guess I'm not speaking from a public health perspective, but more from a personal perspective. These are really hard conversations to have. And uh, there's a lot of stress going on in general right now. So um, if you haven't had these conversations yet, it's not too late. Um, you know, and I think that uh, the most important thing right now is to, uh, you know, reach out to those people that you need to have these conversations with and first just let them know how much you love them and how much you care about them and uh, make sure that you have your connections strong um, and then start thinking about those preparedness conversations that um, we also need to have and, and getting those, those things in order. Um, so yeah. it's not easy. There's a lot of disaster social science that, that shows us the many different ways that people are pro-social in disaster. You know, they help, they're resilient, they're creative, they seek information. But I think usually that kind of research, at least I know from the history of that research, it was done because public officials were worried that society would fly apart at the seams in a disaster. And they wanted to be reassured that we wouldn't. We, uh, what you were just describing, Yvonne, I think is very powerful because we have to also sort of turn that knowledge inward and say, even within families, distances can grow within family, physical distance, geographic distance, emotional distance. And that this is also a moment in which families are pro-social, families are finding each other again, and maybe raising, as you said, questions and issues that we wouldn't like to discuss all at once, but this is where we are with this. Bernadette, I wanted to come back to you because um, I know one of your areas of knowledge, deep knowledge and experience is around grief. And, you know, just two days ago, the President of the United States gave one of his press conferences and he said, the next two weeks are going to really hurt. And it was a really jarring statement. It was jarring the way he put it. And it got me immediately thinking, um, that we have to take stock of how well prepared we are as a society and individuals to deal with grief. And, and, and again, you know, disasters, often they, they seem like events, they sort of happen all at once. And this one is playing out over a slow period of time. Can you share some of your wisdom with us around, around grief and, and how you think about that in your own work there? Oh, um, I'm not sure I'm an expert at all on that. Um, you know, right now we are in the reactive preparation uh, for a potential event in our communities. We haven't had that, so we have been in the what if uh, mode, what if this happened, what if that happened. Um, so we haven't quite hit the emotional level of grief uh, this will be coming when we start losing residents now because we do hospice care a lot we you know we're pretty familiar for as a team to deal with loss of, of residents um, but uh, we can be 
we, we have focused on the physically preparedness. We haven't really focused on the emotional preparedness, which I know is going to come, to be totally honest with you. Um, we're more in the, we passed the denial phase. Um, I think uh, the, the younger staff uh, are concerned that they are maybe sacrificing their life for all people, kind mm -hmm. of uh, talk. Um, and uh, they, some of them, um, very few of them, uh, you know, have backed off because they don't see the point uh, of, they're, they're afraid, they're clearly afraid that they're going to get sick. Uh, and uh, so we, we, we're bracing ourselves for that wave that we know is going to come. So we, we, do, um, we do a lot of, of uh, nurturing the staff. Um, we emptied one of our homes and that's our crash and burn home. Mm. Uh, we decided to empty one home, move all the residents to the other's uh, houses. And um, this is just in case uh, a staff member with single uh, who doesn't have a lot of support gets sick. We said we will take care of you. We have the, the houses, the house and all the things ready. Uh, so we're we, your family, we'll take care of our own. And, uh, but um, I, I don't think the wave has hit. It's more like uh, the denial and, uh, you know, the enemy is invisible. You know, when you when you have a disaster that is visible, like a tsunami or and all that, uh, there is some community support. Everybody goes out to help and so on and so forth. We are doing the opposite. We are just, you know, going into our system, closing doors, not letting people out. So we don't have that uh, that same capacity of support from the community that you would get uh, from another type of disaster. Uh, however, it's interesting, I just got a phone call a few minutes ago, what, you know, because we're in the what if, and I said, what if um, we need more oxygen? Um, because uh, Medicare only give oxygen on a one-to-one -one basis, you know, but what if I have residents or staff who need oxygen? Because they're, they're not, the, the hospital has no capacity to absorb those people. So I was thinking, well, I need to get some, some con oxygen concentrator, concentrators. And I got a call from an agency that said, hey, um, are you interested in any DME that we have? And I said, do you happen to have concentrators? And she said, you bet I do. And I said, uh, can you bring me a few? And so right now, as far as I know, they're delivering me some concentrators that we will put in our crush and burn place. Mm. So we will have them readily available if, um, if um, it's needed. So we're not in uh, very far in the grief process. We, we grieve our freedom more than anything else. Uh, um, I wanted to thank you for that. And, and um, let me come back to you for a second, Yvonne. First, let me remind everyone um, we're talking with Bernadette McBride and Sarah McBride and Yvonne Michael here today on COVID calls and we have about 12 minutes left. If you want to get a question in, you can put it in YouTube live chat or you can send it by Twitter or by email. Um, Yvonne, I have to say I was a little bit, I, I don't know why anything still surprises me, but uh, in, in the midst of this disaster, the starkly ageist um, claims that have been made in some quarters, and I wouldn't say it's been a majority it's been a minority, but a vocal one. And some elected officials, and I'm thinking particularly of the Lieutenant Governor of Texas, who went on television and said, you know, basically uh, old folks have done fine and, and they wanna, they're worried about the economic future of their grandchildren. So they just have to get back out in society and everybody just has to, has to move along. And if that means older population pay a higher price, then that's just the price of keeping our country going. Were you Surprised by that, or were you expecting that kind of that kind of uh, rhetoric in the midst of this disaster? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that um, our society is um, uh, so ageist um, in so many ways, um, in terms of 
uh, what we prioritize, uh, the, our, the priority we place on, on youth, on looking youthful, on acting youthful. And so um, people identify aging with uh, unhealthiness. Um, you know, as long as you're healthy, um, you know, you're, you're not old. Um, and uh, um, so it didn't surprise me to hear the the rhetoric that has been pervasive around this um, pandemic, but um, it is disappointing um, in that the suggestion would be that oh you've you've lived your life you've had your time um, you need to move on so that we can um, ensure that the um, S and P index doesn't fall anymore is uh, is pretty hard to stomach um, and it runs totally contrary to you were talking about earlier, you're the sort of frontier of knowledge in public health research, particularly around disaster response and people with chronic conditions, vulnerable populations and aging populations. I mean, there may have been a, a time in which the notion of, of public health, emergency public health or emergency management was about saving the majority and, and that was that, but we're not there anymore. I mean, the, the frontier is that the vulnerable are, are the, we need to be thinking about saving everyone and saving everyone in, in, in acceptable ways should not be something we have to figure out in the middle of a disaster. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it really does point to the fact that uh, we have a lot to learn about uh, disaster response related to, to older adults. It's a very, very heterogeneous population. Um, you can't say that there's one uh, there you know, there is loss of function with age, um, but there's also a lot of um, uh, change in that. Pe people may lose function and then regain it. Um, so it's not a, a single trajectory and it's not a single downhill trajectory by any stretch of the imagination. So understanding all of that heterogeneity and also understanding uh, the differences in needs uh, for that population is an area that as as that population grows um, and becomes increasingly heterogeneous because uh, we have, we know so much more about how to keep people healthy um, longer, but we still don't know enough about how to maintain that quality of life at, in the later years. Uh, we have a lot more work to do with that. So I think uh, focusing in on research that really understands for that growing group of people, um, how to make sure that that quality of life is maintained, um, but then also how to respond with the increasing uh, likelihood of increasing disasters. Mm -hmm. Sarah, I just to just, yeah. yeah, quickly jump in on Yvonne's sure. comment here, because she, she's absolutely right. I mean, obviously, a fantastic expert. Um, on the elderly, uh, there, there was a piece of research I did on ShakeOut, which is on you know, the earthquake drill, which is drop, cover, and hold on. And we had thousands of observers observing people do uh, shakeout. This is the shakeout paper I wrote about New Zealand from 2012 to 2015. And what we found was the major reason people didn't do it was embarrassment, but also age and fragility. And that, you know, you have to have a certain amount of ability, a physical ability, to go under a desk. And not only that, but people were embarrassed to go under the desk about the, the vulnerability it showed. And the messaging has changed to include people with wheelchairs, include people with walkers and canes. Um, but, but before that time, before kind of 2012, before we really had gotten into that, the messaging was really about really focused on able-bodied people and, 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 and younger people who can complete the whole thing rather than considering the needs of the whole group. And I'm, I'm really pleased to see that that messaging has shifted and been informed by research to include, to include you know, sort of everybody on, on earthquake. Uh, Protective action. Sarah, I wanted to, to stay with you for a second uh, and tap into your expertise as an emergency manager who's uh, been in many different disaster settings around the world. We were talking about grief before, and but particularly in the perspective of um, of, a, of elders dying, being sick or dying. But you know, emergency managers are have some. Uh, special training in coping, right, as well, and PTSD and grief. And I mean, we've never activated 50 states and seven territories EOCs all at once in American history. This is a remarkable moment for emergency managers. 
are they ready to deal with the psychological stress of what's here, what's coming? I mean, I think, and, and mom and I've talked this a lot about how you prepare psychologically for, for responses. And I think, um, I think it will be individual to individual. It'll be based on their training and based on their experiences. Um, and, you know, based on their, their ability to cope. I don't think that there's anything wrong with anyone, any emergency manager who comes out of this experience and experiences anxiety or depression or PTSD, there's nothing wrong with their, you know, with maybe their training or their experience. I think this is such a huge experience at the moment and will we'll continue to evolve um, that I, I think that it, it, it is really, really hard to psychologically prepare for everything that is going to occur. Um, and, and there's many things that I, that, you know, like none of us have a crystal ball in terms of what's going to happen next um, and, and where this is going to go and, and how this is going to evolve. Um, but, you know, if, if it does become a, a, a horrific situation, um, I think that is, it is, it will be completely understandable if our emergency management community is deeply impacted uh, emotionally by it. I, and I, I have a lot of compassion for that. Certainly I've worked disasters that will stick with me forever. And, and, and this may be the same for many of, of my colleagues. I want to get to a couple of questions here. A question, a comment. We had a comment from uh, Mitch Semensky, who's in New York State, and uh, he was really impressed with uh, Bernadette's statement about grieving for our freedom. He thought that was a really useful way to think about what we're dealing with right now. And I want to share a question here from Jess Ballinger. Um, and this is anybody who wants to take this question. Do you have a sense about whether there is a generational difference in how people are accepting public health messaging, particularly about the need to stay at home. Um, this has been a common discussion on social media and in media generally, I think, that there may be generational differences um, even between baby boomers and, and Gen X and millennials uh, around whether or not they're following public health advice. Would any of you like to respond to what? Jess Ballinger's question. On my generation, we're happy that we can have another nap, okay? <laughs> so staying at home is not a big problem. Uh, unfortunately, I can't do it much. Um, but I, I think uh, you, you look more inward and uh, we're more, you know, more insight into what we do. Personally, um, I need to lighten up. Uh, when I stay at home because of all the things. So we've been watching like Monty Python movies and things that makes us kind of laugh. And um, that are lights and uh, doing like stained glass, which is uh, one of my interests. Um, so I don't have a problem, uh, you know, with that issue. Uh, Sarah, you want to talk about your generation of... Uh, staying at home. I think you're doing some pretty cool stuff. Well, I, I you know, I don't want to speak on behalf of my entire Generation X. I'm at the, the late end of, of Generation yeah. X. That's very, that's very Gen X of you, not not willing to speak <laughs> on behalf of the whole Gen X. That's cool. I, like, like uh, I think, Scott, I think, I think you're, you're with me on the, on like, I don't want to speak for everyone, but. Yeah, totally. I, I think the fact that, you know, uh, We've had the, the Gen X has had the internet for, for 20 years, and I think we've been using it for a long time to come up with some pretty innovative ways of, of socializing and coming together and, uh, and, and keeping in touch and working together. What I'm really fascinated with as a researcher is the use of different channels by different generations to communicate social norms and behaviors. Like I'm seeing so many interesting things on TikTok, for instance that are really getting into a, a younger generation on social norming around this, or on how Instagram is, is being used as a channel for social norm to reach a certain group of people um, versus Twitter, which is definitely, you know, which, I mean, and you have people across the generations using these platforms, but they are sometimes dominated by a certain age group. I think that's what I'm really fascinated about is how these different channels are being used by these different groups to say, you know, stay home, here, here is wash your hands, you know, cover your coughs and sneezes. Like that to me is really interesting on how, how that information is being communicated by using these different channels. And then also the use of humor 
um, which is a big uh, research part of what I like. To, what uh, a big part of my research is, is around the use of humor to communicate important messages. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's that's what I'm interested in. How Gen X is handling it. Um, I, yeah, Scott, I don't know. What do you think? What, what can we say about Gen X? And well, there were so <laughs> many. There were so many jokes going around the internet. You know, it was, and one of them was, uh, well, uh, Gen X. You know, we grew up being going home alone after school with a latch key anyway, watching TV, we're totally prepared for, for this kind of thing. And um, so, you know, these are, these are memes and tropes, but, you know, maybe they also speak to a deeper uh, issue here that we've been talking about for the last hour, which is also the need to kind of break through those stereotypes and say, well, it's not what Gen X does or the baby boom generation does, it's what those two in conversation can do together. And I think that's, it doesn't make for a very funny tweet, I realize, but I think that's much more the reality that we're, that we're facing um, right now. It's, it's, it's much more popular to shade another generation, right? It's much Absolutely. more popular to say like, you know, these people are at fault or, you know, blame the millennials, which is definitely a popular trope. And, and actually, it's, it's none of those things, right? These are all, um, everyone, I think, is handling it different. I think the, the great generational debate, maybe this will be a great generational debate equalizer, that maybe we're so. all coming together as a community and a society, as, as, a, as a group, as a, as, as, a, as a community, regardless of generation, to, to help, make, help lessen this, this event. There was um, one more uh, question. We're up on time, but I want to get to one more question here from Mike Fisher. Um, Sarah, to you, actually. He was wondering if you could say a little bit more about um, different channels of information and which generations dominate which. In other words, in a communication strategy, do we expect that age will be um, a determining factor of how people will seek out information? Yeah, so we're seeing what, what, what I would call a lot of uses in gratification theory, uh, which is a well-known communication theory from the 1970s and onwards. And basically, it means that people seek out the channels which most, uh, which are most satisfying to them. It gratifies them the most to use. And we're seeing uh, different generations uh, flocking to different platforms because it most satisfies their particular need. Uh, you know, Twitter, arguably, it's a great platform because it's, you can have a short, informative, interesting tweet, and then you move on to the next, and it's just this constant churn. So for people who are wanting that constant churn, they get that sort of constant churn. And it has, you know, humor and wit and um, brevity are the goals of, of Twitter, really, I mean, when you, when you look at that. And when we look at sort of Twitter demographics, and I haven't, I haven't looked at Twitter demographics for a while, but it tended to, like, the last, I think 2017 was the last time I really looked in depth into it. But it was, like, between... Think about like 29 to 49 was that was a, a, a group that often uses a lot of Twitter. Reddit tended to be a little bit younger. Um, uh, Instagram is, is definitely younger. TikTok is, is younger still. But you do see people, you know, we do have 90 year olds tweeting and we have 80 year olds using TikTok. So you do have those outliers coming in or, or YouTube as well. Um, one of my favorite YouTube channels is is a woman who cooks meals from the Great Depression, and she's 98, and she's she's just delightful, and she tells all these great stories about mm. the Great Depression, and she uses YouTube. So I, I think she did pass away a few years ago, but I've been watching her library, and I find it really, I find yeah. her really interesting. So I don't know. I hope that answers. No, I, I would great. say any communication strategy, yeah, definitely needs multiple channels to reach different different age groups and different demographics. So we're almost out of time here. I wanted to just get one more quick um, hit, Yvonne, this is for you. Um, you know, we've heard from Sarah and from Bernadette in different ways about how this pandemic is changing the ways they work or the research that they do. Do you see something similar in, in public health research? I mean, first of all, how are we going to do public health research remotely for the next six to 18 months? But I know, you know, it's a big question, but what's at the top of your mind on this kind of issue of how research itself is going to change in this moment? Yeah, I wish I could answer that question. It's a million dollar question for sure. Um, and I think there's a lot of people thinking about creative ways. Uh, I've been talking to colleagues who are getting surveys out in the field already um, mm -hmm. to answer some of these questions about preparation, about communication channels. Um, so there is there are people who are much more ambitious than I am who have already jumped way into it um, and, and 
and thank goodness for them because we're going to need all of this information uh, being collected in real time uh, to to really understand what was happening at this time. Uh, so I think I think it remains to be seen. I mean, honestly, the question you brought up about ageism is something I've been thinking about a lot and mm. uh, thinking about uh, you know what. Uh, it may lend itself to some research of uh, using Twitter to see what kind of uh, uh, ageism is out there and um, uh, you know, try to understand uh, its impact on people's, uh, how they felt about responding uh, within the context of this pandemic. Um, so lots of, lots of interesting things. I, um, I love the idea of, of of really understanding how different generations have responded to the to the um, uh, the requests to shelter in place, and uh, there's been some interesting research that's come out suggesting that the younger people are actually more attentive to the shelter in place orders than than the uh, older population. And why would that be? Um, does it have something to do with the age ageism that's out there that has been self uh, internalized? Um, so I don't know, lots of lots of great research right now. I'm trying to keep my family like whole and together. Yeah, so I, uh, I haven't jumped in yet, but. Well, thank you for taking this hour with us, Yvonne, and sharing your knowledge and wisdom. And Sarah and Bernadette, thank you for joining us and also sharing a mother-daughter conversation in this moment, mm -hmm. which uh, it was really important. And I hope maybe we can come back to you as a trio uh, I hate to say this, but I think we're going to be grappling with this for some time, and maybe we can come back and reconvene this conversation later. I learned a lot from it. I want to thank you all for tuning in to the COVID calls today and remind you that we have two tomorrow, 4 p.m., with Julian Zelazar, Zelazar to talk about pandemics and politics, and then at 5 p.m. tomorrow, Cheung John of KAIST in South Korea and Professor Song Sik Hwang of Seoul National University talking about COVID-19 in South Korea. Everyone stay healthy and we will speak with you tomorrow afternoon. Thank you.